Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com. SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and the FCS. Joe Lundergan and Eric Henry here with you as always. And the big news item of the week within the Conference USA, Will Healy out as the head coach of the Charlotte 49er program. Uh, Pete Rosamondo taking over in the interim. And we are going to talk with the Charlotte Observer's Hunter Bailey, former UDD contributor and occasional uh, underdog contributor. As uh, as folks know, he comes on the show quite a bit. Uh, also host of the Highway 49 podcast. He's going to join us in just a bit to talk about where Charlotte goes from here and what has kind of happened in the last couple of weeks um, to lead to this situation and uh, just get some reaction from someone who's been on the ground covering that program for uh, a long time. But Eric, you know, I know you were at the Charlotte game. We're going to get into it, but you know, there's, there's plenty more and question. Are you ready? <laughs> oh man. I, uh, <laughs> I am ready. We are officially, at least for FIU officially past the halfway mark of the year. I know some teams who started week zero have been past that mark for a while. So yeah, I am ready for the home stretch of conference USA and you know, what should is shaping up to be a fairly exciting Conference USA title race as far as the two teams that will play in the conference title game. And then, of course, on the opposite side of things, as you talked about, you know, there's definitely going to be some coaching situations to keep an eye on. Uh, one's already played out Charlotte. You know, a couple of us we can probably get into uh, as we recap some games. But, yeah, yeah, I am ready for the home stretch, sir. I know we're getting there. And you mentioned there's a few teams who are still in the CUSA race. Let's let's dive into two of them here uh, before we get into the uh, the meat of the show. And that uh, those two teams are Western Kentucky and UAB. Uh, Hilltoppers beat the Blazers 20-17 to 17 in Bowling Green this past weekend. Uh, a little bit of a slow start for the eventual victors in this one. But the Tops would go on to force four turnovers in this uh, win despite that. And for me, here's a few other things that stuck out in terms of Western's, you know, offensive day here. Austin Reed now tied for fifth in the FBS for passing touchdowns with 21. But what's really interesting to me, though, about Western's use of Reed as of late has been the confidence in his running ability. Uh, They're using that QB draw play more and more. He's got six touchdowns in that department, actually. So averaging just about three yards per carry. And I think part of that also has something to do with just his like his size and his length. He's really good about falling forward and reaching that ball forward, uh, which is always a pretty good idea in short yarded situations for him. And overall, this was actually the best rushing day that WKU has had as a team this year. 224 yards on the ground. And they were talking about it on the broadcast specifically with uh, Dante Whitner. And I'm, I'm forgetting the play-by-play as well. The play-by-play analyst that did this game for CBS as well. But when you have a team that has that air raid model thing that Tyson Helton's used, it's always weird to see them run the ball as much as they did and have the kind of success they did coming out of a shotgun formations and B going up against a, uh, a front seven in UAB. That's usually really good at defending the run. Um, but 
Western definitely helped their cause of returning to the CUSA championship game with that win. They're now second in the league with that five and three record. But as we know, that can change very quickly. And UAB aren't far off either, I should add. Not exactly in control of their own destiny with two conference losses. And the big thing for them in this game, uh, Dylan Hopkins exited in the first quarter and Jacob Zeno played the rest. Certainly hope Hopkins is okay. Seemed like he was dealing with uh, some concussion protocol issues there. Yeah, Joe. And just a quick note, I believe it was Alex Del Barrio was the play-by-play man with Dante Whitner for CBS Sports Network. Just forgot to throw that in there so he gets, gets the credit. Um, yeah, you know what? It's interesting because I've seen some people say that, oh, if Dylan Hopkins plays this entire game, they win. I, I, I It's hard to make that argument when you allow 224 yards rushing, especially, you know, the the short yardage stuff that you give up with Austin Reed. Um or well, short yards as far as the touchdowns, but um, when you give up the, the amount of yards you do, because it wasn't like this was a typical Western Kentucky passing output that we've seen over the past two seasons. Now, I, I, I will say this: I do think if Dylan Hopkins plays the entire game, it's interesting. I mean, it's a 50-50 shot that they win, but it's not a foregone conclusion in my mind. Jacob Zeno, I don't want to say the stage was too big for him. But when he came in the game, I mean, it, it was just it was even more so abundantly clear that the offensive you know, game plan was kind of going to have to shift to going with Dwayne McBride. And he had a hell of a game, 24 carries for a buck 97. Joe, he didn't even start the game. I, I know you watched that game. Uh, honestly, it was the first two series that he did not play. Jermaine Brown Jr. got the start and then Dwayne McBride came in afterwards. So, you know, I'd be interested to see what that was. I, I don't want to make any assumptions but that kind of just screams of you know something internal or maybe he got hurt in warm-ups and, and they kind of had to you know handle something there so i just definitely will be checking for uh evan dudley's coverage to see if we can get some information on that but yeah all in all i mean that and the three turnovers you know the fumble by hopkins on the play yeah i believe it was the play that he got hurt uh, he had a fumble i believe and uh Dwayne mcbride lost two fumbles as well so listen great win for western kentucky the fact that they exhibited what tyson elton's talked about I don't care. And this is kind of, you know, uh, paraphrasing a quote from him. I don't care how we win. I just want to find ways to win. When he was asked about, you know, the air raid and whatnot, he said, sometimes the games we're going to pass 50 times and win. Sometimes be games that you know, depend on the run game. This was one of those times. But also for UAB, it's a tough loss in that you have the three turnovers. Or I want to say it was four turnovers, sorry, with the interception that Zeno threw through. And then also the fact that Dylan Hopkins is hurt. So the Blazers still very much in contention at four and three and two and two in conference, but Western at five and three and three and one for right now, they have the edge should that come down to a tiebreaker and are in the driver's seat. Yeah. And, you know, I think in football, we throw around the term uh, game of inches, and it was definitely one of those in this game. I mean, UAB just came so close to, to forcing a few other key turnovers that really would have helped their cause. Uh, I believe it was in the third quarter, that deep interception on the, uh, you know, that that deep ball that, um, you know, that's the other thing about UAB, too. Their secondary was defending the deep routes really well in this game. And I think that's kind of why Western went to the run as much as they did. And I'm surprised the front seven didn't do a better job of limiting uh, Western's production in that area. But in the third quarter, we saw that interception just kind of barely touch the ground as that safety come over to defend that, uh, that post route, I believe it was. And there were a few other, you know, um, plays where it ended up being ruled that, you know, the Western runner was down and it very well could have been a fumble. So they were fighting. The defense was on UAB side through a lot of this game. So I can kind of see where people are coming from on the Dylan Hopkins argument. But at the same time, if you have a guy like Dwayne McBride and just really any defense in Conference USA, it seems like you should be able to 
put yourself in a position to win games if you have uh you know the kind of attack that they do in that department and again really surprised uab's defense didn't do a better job against western's rushing attack here joe it's interesting you know the longer i cover football um the more i am a believer in and i'm not saying i'm not saying this as a as a as a slight i'm just kind of saying it as a reality if you don't game plan for something, it's really hard to kind of shift on the fly. I'm not accusing Brian Vincent of not game yeah. planning for the run. However, we know that Western Kentucky is a very potent passing team. If they did not game plan for guys like LT Sanders and Davion Irvin Poindexter to get as much work as they did, I mean, between the three of them, between the two of them, uh, 31 carries, right? If you don't game plan for that, despite the fact that you have the talent, it's kind of hard to adjust on the fly. I think that's probably one of the things that makes, you know, the difference between an average coach and a good coach and a good coach and a great coach. And again, I'm not accusing Brian Vincent of either a being average or B having not game plan for it, but it's just one of those things that, like I said, the longer I cover football, it's the more that I'm around some of these answers you get post game as FIU or wherever, you know, just watching pressers of many teams, college NFL doesn't matter. Um, you game plan for something. And if, if, if that's not what you get, <laughs> that's not what you get uh, on Saturdays or Sundays that you've been game plan for during the week, things can go awry. So that's just where my mind goes. When I think about a UAB defense, that's clearly very talented and allowed the, the rushing output that they did. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I actually got to sit in the presser for Army's win over ULM this past uh, week. And Jeff Monken actually said something pretty similar. They had some treble against uh, ULM's defensive front in the first part of that game, which is a, a topic of a separate discussion. But I completely see where you're coming from in terms of the game plan issues. And if you don't have a plan already in place by the time you get to you know, <laughs> the, the time where you're lining up to actually do it, then that certainly causes some problems. All right, with that, let's go to another close game and one that obviously also affects this USA title race, and that is Rice's overtime win against Louisiana Tech, 42-41 to in Ruston. Uh, Rice very much still alive in this USA race with that win, which feels weird to say, but also they have not played as many games as the rest of the league, so still time to see how their season unfolds here. Um, in the overtime period, Louisiana Tech did answer Rice's first score. They elected to go for the win on a two-point attempt, but they did not convert that with an incomplete pass. Can't necessarily blame the true freshman quarterback, Landry Liddy, however. He stepped in after both Parker McNeil and Matthew Downing got hurt in this game. And the Owls, looky here, they matched their most wins in a season since 2016 with this victory. So Mike Bloomgren's team heading in the right direction, and Louisiana Tech, bad luck. First off, Joe, because uh, I had some people ask me on Twitter, no issues with the decision to go for two in my mind. If you're, you know, Sonny Cumbie, A, I, I love showing confidence in your football team. And B, I guess, you know, at that point in time, they would have been three and four. So in theory, anything could have <laughs> could have been the case uh, that maybe, you know, you're like, hey, you know, we can still fight for a bowl. I don't think anyone with a very young and inexperienced team, I don't think anyone had Louisiana Tech, you know, really competing for a conference title this year. So I don't mind that decision as well. And last but not least, if you're not stopping anyone, you, you, maybe you think, because I heard Mike McIntyre say this following the decision to go for two, which worked out in their favor when they beat FCS Bryant the season opener. He said, we just, we weren't stopping them. I saw the way we came out in the first drive and at the first drive overtime and they just scored on this. I decided, Hey, if we're going to win it, you know, it's, we're going to have to do it here as opposed to trying to go score for score. 
So to bring it all the way back around, no issues with that at all. Very encouraging to see the performance of Landry Liddy and Parker McNeil. You know, when your starter gets knocked out and the two guys and and, and the two guys that come in uh, are able to have a certain amount of success. Uh, I think that in my mind is super positive. Um, another thing that as far as Louisiana Tech that I take away, they got that running game going again. So with Marquise Crosby, 14 carries for 87 yards against a Rice defense that, while not great, maybe not what it has been in previous years, you know, being the strength of the team is still very solid. Now, the flip side is Louisiana Tech's defense still struggling. And with the loss of Tyler Grubbs for the entire year, it's going to take some guys who need to step up and try to fill in in his absence. But we saw how that was affected. 45 carries for 279 yards. That's the type of Rice football I think we've been accustomed to over the last few years of, of uh, intellectual brutality. Let me get that tagline right. TJ McMahon goes 16 to 27 for 208 and three TDs. That certainly is a positive as well. And all in all, I mean, let's just, you know, give credit to Rice. You know, they have a winning record at this point in the year, which I'll be the first one to admit, I didn't see coming in, in relation or in comparison to the way they started the year, and especially with some of the quarterback issues that they had come into this year, I was not sure they'd be able to get that done. But with weapons like Brad Rosner, who had a touchdown, and then Luke McCaffrey's made that successful transition from quarterback to receiver, being a phenomenal athlete. I think that those two things, having those two guys, has really opened up some things for them offensively. So give credit to Mike Bloomgren. And yeah, I mean, they're two wins away from a bowl and with a real shot, even as you said, still, still to compete for a CUSA title, which sounds crazy to say yeah and you know rice fans can rightfully you know roast me for this between a you know the fact that we had two games here between uh you know traditional contenders for the cusa title i guess with western kentucky playing uab in the utsa north texas game that we got to and then obviously the news cycle being what it was regarding the fallout of the FIU Charlotte game. This was admittedly the one I spent the least time analyzing, but I really love to see, you know, Rice being able to, you know, control this kind of game. Any thoughts on the defense kind of not being able to, uh, you know, I, you know, you mentioned Louisiana Tech making the decision they did in overtime because they were having issues stopping Rice, but kind of seems like, you know, that was a a situation that Rice was also dealing with in, in focusing on, you know, the Sonny Cumbie offense. Yeah, I mean, clearly both teams were, were having issues stopping each other. I mean, in my mind, it's different if you go into overtime, let's say 14-14, uh, or, you know, in a bit of a lower lower score, a lower end of things, then when you go into overtime, you know, in, in the high 30s and the 40s or anything more than that, it's clear that whichever team is able to make a stop is going to win. And in this case, if, you're, if your defense isn't showing any signs of making a stop, then yeah, you got to make that decision to go for two in my mind. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the decision definitely made sense. I think it's just, uh, it's just interesting to see where these two teams are when we compare it to the, or when you look at it through the perspective of where these programs were even, you know, two years ago. So uh, yeah. good on rice for, you know, stepping up to meet the expectations so far for this season. Uh, so, you know, only played uh, through seven games here. So we'll see what they do with the rest of the year. All right. And I should call this next segment part one of our FIU Charlotte analysis, because obviously we're going to bring in Hunter Bailey to talk about some of the fallout from this contest later in the show. Um, but FIU wins this one 34 to 15 Panthers look to control the entire time. Um, Let's talk about what we actually saw here. For me, I was really impressed with a few things about how this FIU team performed. The first was Grayson James' composure. And I've talked about how I think he's going to grow into something special if he's already leading a team the way that he is as a sophomore. 
was 26 of 34 in this game for 306 yards and a touchdown with an interception, which in my opinion, the interception was kind of a bad play call. I, I didn't really understand what they were trying to do on that play that close to the goal line with um, not a lot of room for the receivers to get open, which James also ran for two touchdowns as well. I think that would have been a better option. But anyway, uh, and also welcome back to the field. Tyrese Chambers, 10 catches for 143 yards. Always great to have your captain put in the uh, A, the statistical performance that he had. And B, you know, you mentioned it when we were talking off air and when we were talking with Hunter as well. He was the the spiritual leader of this performance as well. Just played uh, really well, had great energy. And let's let's not forget the defense for FIU. They were fantastic. Five interceptions for that group and Frankly, the majority of those were not gimmies either. They were making plays and showcasing the athleticism that I think we're always kind of looking for when you have as many guys um, who have the athletic ability we know FIU can recruit. Yeah, Joe, I think you meant five sacks and you said five interceptions there. But all in all, yes, uh, still an incredible defensive performance for the Panthers. Uh, Joe, can I bring you inside the press box and make a confession, sir? Oh, please do. You talked about the interception and the play call there that Grayson James threw. Uh by that point in time, I believe the game was 27-0 or 34-0. I can't remember which. And I started writing my game story. I was looking minor down. Minor details. Did not see the yeah, – minor detail. was looking down. Did not see the pick. Still have not seen the pick. So I have no idea what the play call was. Uh, I plan on watching it tonight before if I use presser. So uh, I will have to catch up there. Uh, listen, you know, we, when you get ahead four scores in the second half, you, you got to get a jump on the game story. Um, that aside, Joe – uh, this, in my mind, and as you talk about, we will get into all things Charlotte with Hunter Bailey in a bit. But this play set the tone for FIU. The second play of the game, running back, turned the defensive end, linebacker Sean Peterson Jr., a mountain of a man at 6'3", 225 pounds, or probably close to 245 at this point in time, is matchup with a tight end. Um, I'm forgetting which tight end. And, oh, man. I, and I just wrote it in my game my uh, game notebook, but matched up with the Charlotte uh, starting tight end, uh, blocking back. Uh, come on, who was it again? Tight end, looking at game notes. Game notes. Jay Clements. Jay Clements at 6'6, 250, right? So I'm sure Charlotte offensive coordinator Mark Carney's thinking, all right, I could leave him one on one on an island on, on, a, on an edge rush and it'll be fine. Not a good decision at all. One bull rush later, Jay Clemens was beat. Sean Peterson strip sacks and recovers the fumble of Chris Reynolds. And you can hear a collective groan from the Charlotte coaches box in that moment. You gave FIU too many short fields. And here was a big thing that Mike McIntyre talked about post game. I talked about the past two weeks, FIU struggles in the red zones. And when getting in, you know, the opposing sides 50 and specificity inside the 35, you got to be able to come away with some sort of points and primarily and ideally touchdowns. They were not able to do that the past two weeks. It hurt them, and particularly against UConn, but also to a lesser extent against UTSA. Two Grayson James touchdown runs of 12 yards and nine yards. And I asked both Mac and Grayson James post game, and they said that that was not a coincidence. It, that was game planned. Uh, I believe the direct quote from Grayson was, "Hey, we want to add an extra hat out there." Essentially saying, "Hey, if we can use me as a rusher, and we got an extra hat out there as a blocker, that's huge." You know, that's that that could make the difference in terms of, you know, being able to get that penetration that you need to open up those rushing lanes. And Grayson, you've talked about him, Joe. I know you last two weeks, you've really talked about his maturity and how much you like him. He is every bit of 6'4 and 225, 230, 235, 240. And he is surprisingly athletic and nimble for that size. I mean, he's not, is he, uh, you know, 
he's not a Cam Newton. I don't want to make him out to be, you know, an athletic specimen in that regard. But he is someone who, when he gets out there and gets on the edge, and the edge is sealed off, can make some things happen. I think that was indicative. Uh, was in was was shown with the two touchdown runs. So outside of that, yeah, I mean, just a, a largely flat performance by the 49ers, and we saw what happened in the post game. And again, we'll talk about that with Hunter Bailey, but Tyrese as well. It, the energy that he brings to this team. The guy who, you know, he fielded a punt, in the, a warm-up punt in, in the pregame warm-ups and held the thing over his head and just ran the entire team off into the locker room. I mentioned that because when you come into this game, if you're Charlotte, you're the veteran team. Yes, you're one and five, one and six, but you're thinking, okay, we had some games against Power 5 opponents. It's homecoming. We should be fired up, excited to be back home. No energy. I mean, it's just one of those things, Joe, that I think in my mind is very noticeable and it's tangible. When the team that's coming in as two-score underdogs 35 minutes before the game just lost two two straight, and they're fired up to play, and the guys at home kind of look like they're sleepwalking. So it was something that was very interesting to kind of notice. And again, as I said, you know, we'll talk about that with Hunter and we saw how it played out. But a great win for the Panthers. Don't want to take anything away from them. And look out, Joe. I mean, while they're not in the conference title conversation, they're a three-win team now that I don't think anyone saw that coming. And you look at some of the teams they faced down the stretch here. They got Louisiana Tech on Friday. They will play Middle Tennessee. They'll play UTEP that has struggled a bit. It's been up and down. And an FAU team that we'll talk about is, is struggling as well. Are there three more wins left on this schedule? I don't know, but uh, it's it should be interesting. I mean, if uh, again, it, we're, it's getting a little too far to talk about bowl contention, but if they can get to six wins, hell, in my mind, even if they get to five wins, uh, Mike McIntyre is my vote for coach of the year. I'm sorry that may upset some people who, you know, if, if UTSA or Western wins eight or nine games, I don't care. Uh, quite frankly, I, I could look at eight wins or nine wins for Western in relation to the talent they have on that roster and call it disappointment. I can call six wins compared to what Mike McIntyre had on the roster and take over the job and where they are now and call it damn near a miracle. <laughs> I, we can have that coach of the year conversation a little bit later <laughs> down the week. So sorry, being, sorry, sorry, Joe. I, 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 I jumped out ahead, right? I just threw a mouthful. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's no, it's okay. Uh, I will say bowl eligibility for FIU is not, out of the question for sure. I think the way that they've played the last couple of weeks has been really good when you compare it to, you know, the rest of their body of work. I've talked about Grayson James. I've talked about some of the other guys on that offense, just, you know, really having fun with it and putting their best, uh, their best football out there. And I will correct myself from earlier in this conversation. I said five interceptions. I meant five turnovers total, uh, three interceptions, two fumble recoveries for that FIU defense in there. And, you know, another note about, and I guess this kind of fits into both categories of kind of the, the listless, performance we saw from Charlotte and the, you know, rather energized one we saw from FIU, particularly on defense, Chris Reynolds had no time to get comfortable. Donovan Manuel and the rest of that team were, um, and Devon Strickland as well, just giving that offensive backfield all sorts of problems. You know, we, we saw that, that one play that sticks out in my head where I forget the FIU defender that, that did it, but just broke into the backfield instantly and uh, like leapt over the offensive line almost. And, you know, about took uh, inadvertently took uh, Chris Reynolds head off where they, they ruled it the sack, you know, like he had no time to, to get comfortable. And, you know, obviously that played a huge role in uh, why FIU was able to force as many turnovers as they were. 
Undoubtedly. And that was a big thing. You know, the 3-4 defense, and I've talked about it a little bit, you're starting to see a few more teams kind of adopt it in relation with being multiple, Joe. It's not your dad's 3-4. It's not the 3-4 where you got three down linemen and then you're looking for, you know, maybe that rusher from a a, a stand-up linebacker perspective. You routinely see a 3-4 where that fourth guy is kind of declaring, right? He's a dedicated edge rusher, like a a dedicated – forgive me for using the comparison here, but like a Von Miller type, right? A guy who, you know, he's got one job. He's rushing the passer, but he's just going to, instead of being in, in a necessarily a blitz, he's just, you know, standing up at the line. That served FIU well when they've had success rushing the passer. A lot of that, again, has been either Sean Peterson Jr., uh, DJ Kinsler at times, Alex Nobles, uh, who I believe had a either a sack or a forced fumble in that game. I think it was the forced fumble for, uh, and, and recovery. So, yeah, um, definitely did not give Chris Reynolds much time to throw all day. I love a good versatile outside linebacker. Like whether they can – if they can go from pass coverage to pass rush seamless, seamlessly, that's like my favorite kind of defensive player. And I think, you know, I've, I've talked about some of those guys that fit that mold in CUSA over the last couple of years. But, you know, we, we've talked about that game quite a bit here, but obviously we're going to bring in Hunter Bailey in a few minutes to talk more about the fallout from the performance that ultimately ended up being the last of Will Healy's Charlotte tenure. So let's move on to UTSA beating North Texas 31 to 27 in a fantastic rivalry matchup at the Alamo Dome. In my opinion, probably game of the week in terms of the on-field performance. Uh, UTSA getting it done on the final two plays. Huge catch by Oscar Cardenas getting the ball down to the 10. Had that one-handed grab, leapt over defender. And when you see a man that big doing those kind of things athletically, it just, I don't know, gives you hope as a, as a big man myself. We'll see if I can get to that point. Probably won't. We'll probably get Taco Bell DoorDash for lunch again, but we'll see. <laughs> and then uh, Frank Harris had that big play to DeCorian Clark for the winning score, made that big leaping grab on the fade route there, or maybe not the fade route, but um, kind of hit him in the corner of the end zone. Great ball positioning by uh, Frank on that one. Um, but honestly, prior to that, I think the biggest thing here was just how ready for that UNT rushing game the uh, the UTSA defense was. Eric, they held the mean green to just 22 net yards on the ground in this game. However, the passing game for UNT looked way better than it has. Credit to Ostinani on that. And credit to guys like Varkis Gumps, who had a few huge plays to keep them in this game. But ultimately, uh, UTSA gets revenge for the uh, North Texas loss they had last year and very much remains on top of CUSA here. Joe, I don't want to take any credit away from North Texas. Um, from from, from uh, UTSA, sorry. But this game was super interesting. Having a chance to watch it back a little bit, I understand. When you're not having success with the run, you got to do something else, right? You, you just, I am not a believer in just, all right, this is what we do well. If, if it doesn't work, then, you know, we got to, you know, just keep doing it, right? You, you got to be able to be flexible. I understand that. But when you look at this game, UNT was up, I want to say, what, 14-7, I believe, or 14-3 at one point? Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Uh, either way, they had a lead in the third quarter. Uh, yeah, they did have the verify that. They did have a lead uh, entering the fourth quarter. I would have liked to have seen them just try, say, hey, this is our identity. We're going to close this thing out with the run. Um, because, again, in my mind, when you play three quarters of this type of football against a UTSA offense, you talk about it. Josh Cephas, JT Clark, um, Zachary Franklin, all the offense, Frank Harris, all the offensive weapons that they have. It's a tough ask to ask your defense to stop them the entire game. 
you know, to to only allow them to 10 points entering the fourth. I don't know. I guess, it, listen, that could be Monday morning quarterback. And it's interesting because we actually are taping on a Monday for, uh, you know, one of the rare times. But that's just my synopsis of kind of where UNT came in. But yes, as you talked about, give credit to the UTSA defense for holding UNT to the 20 something net rushing yards. It wasn't even a ton of sack yardage, you know, only two sacks. So it wasn't like a ton of sack yards brought brought the rushing number down. Brendan Brady, how about him, Joe? Let's talk to him a little bit. Someone who appeared to be the future of the UTSA run game after being a freshman, you know, a promising freshman. Then Sincere McCormick comes in. I know Greg Aluka talked about it a little bit. We had him on the podcast. Sincere McCormick comes in and ends up being the guy, one of the top rushers in the nation for his time there. And Brendan Brady didn't waver. You know, he ended up staying. And now he gets a nice performance in a huge game for his team, 19 carries, 112 yards, and two scores. So just felt the need to outline him a little bit. But all in all, definitely a great win for UTSA. I think – I don't want to say you know it would have been tough if they would lost North Texas, but if they go 5-3, and three, North Texas goes 5-3, and three, and they have the same record uh, in the conference, maybe UNT would have had a 4-1 record. Or they would have been 4-0 and UTSA would have been 3-1. Yeah. Um, that takes a little bit of steam off of last year, especially an in-state foe, an in-state G5 foe. Uh, that takes a little bit of steam off of things. So all in all, definitely think a very important win for UTSA more wins in more ways than one. Absolutely. And you mentioned Brendan Brady and the performance that he's had in this game and really throughout most of this year. The thing that really impresses me the most about UTSA is just how balanced they are on offense. And, you know, obviously when they, they need to, they can go to that passive game. They have more than enough weapons on that side of the ball, but these last couple of weeks, they have uh, really shown that, you know, they can make use of the entire field in their offensive play calling it and credit to uh, Will Stein and, and that, and getting that, uh, that done and preparing that offense for what they need to do in that regard. Um, but yeah, Brendan Brady, huge back really can depend on him in, in short yarded situations and really setting up those short yarded situations on second and third down. And which is why they have so much room to play with uh, kind of those deep routes that those, uh, that those receivers that you mentioned have, uh, have made good use of this year. And really, UTSA, I don't want to jinx them, but I think they've had better luck with injuries than most of the other teams in CUSA, really. I mean, they their top guys have really been able to perform in uh, the games that they've really needed them to. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, they did have some injuries in the offensive line. Uh, oh, sure. Sure, coming, sure, sure. This one. But no, but no, Joe, I still think the point is still fair because the, the a lot of the skill position guys have been super healthy. So I still think your your, your point is still solid. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that photo that I think I and Jared Kalmas both tweeted? I think it was immediately after their uh, post-game handshake of Jeff Trailer and Seth Luttrell with kind of their back, like back-to-back sort of, and just the look of kind of quiet determination on Jeff Trailer's face and kind of the, you know, the, Seth, you know, Seth Luttrell, love the guy has two facial expressions. <laughs> and, um, you know, you could kind of understand what, his face looked like after uh, losing a close game to an in-state rival. But did you, I mean, did you see the photo I'm talking about? Just how good of a picture it was. Absolutely. I mean, it was a phenomenal photo. And I think you said it best. I think someone said that. I can't remember if it was, you know, it was a fan or someone said that uh, Seth would still beat up Jeff trailer. And I think you said, (laughs) or like a wrestling match. I think you said, yeah, but Jeff still still wins a chili cook-off. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, no, Emily said I would take Seth Latrell in a oh, match. Van Buskirk, okay, makes sense. Yeah, and I said, fair, but I would take Jeff Trailer in a chili cook-off. <laughs> and I couldn't agree with your assessment more. <laughs>
Oh, man. Great game. And hopefully we get more matchups like that out of the UTSA-UNT rivalry in the future. Um, with really, that, really quick, just in case Drew yeah. Trailer happens to hear this podcast, it, it, we're being sarcastic, all right? Like, you are a Texas, a Texas man, all right? Like, I, I don't want Jeff Trailer trying to beat us up. It's like, no <laughs> case that he could he could hang. It's a compliment, sir. Like, chili cook-off. That, you, you'll, there's a better chance of finding me and Joe at the chili cook-off than any wrestling match or fight. So, Have you seen the movie Hot Rod? I, I have not. Okay. Well, for those that have seen the movie Hot Rod, I picture Jeff Trailer and Seth Luttrell having a wrestling match in the basement the way that Andy Samberg and Ian McShane's characters do. <laughs> but that's a, the reference doesn't land with my co-host, obviously. They never do. oh man all right with that let's let's stay in the state of texas and talk about utep's 24 to 21 victory over the florida atlantic owls uh fau fall to three and five certainly not where they want to be at this time of year and really i was a bit confused as to why they weren't relying more on the passing game only threw the ball 20 times in this game and frankly i think nikosi perry is a quarterback you can call upon more than that uh, in those situations. But um, I do think we need to give UTEP credit, though. They're doing a way better job finishing games than they were earlier in the year. And shouts to kicker uh, Gavin Beckel. Um, he made the winning kick as time expired, and that was his 51st career-made field goal, which is a new program record for UTEP. And he's also made 15 consecutive field goals, which is really good for the collegiate level. I know we give college kickers a lot of uh, a lot of flack for not being super reliable, but this guy certainly is for this program. Um, but, you know, I think UTEP needs to clean up the penalties as well. They had nine in this game, and, and frankly, they probably could have won by uh, more and put them in a position where they didn't have to kick a field goal as time expired to beat an Owls team that's uh, struggling. Joe, I don't want to sound as if I'm necessarily bashing Nikosi Perry. Um, I know you felt that, you could, that they could have called upon him a little bit more, but I actually do want to take the opposite perspective here. Now, with that being said, I don't know if this is play calling. I don't know if there's just a lack of offensive identity. I know I've kind of talked about some of those things on this pod. I'm going to take you through a couple drives here. First off, and, and I guess I'll take you through them and then kind of give it back to you to get your thoughts. So when you have drives that go seven plays, 29 yards, this one started at the 44-yard line. It's in your midfield. You got an eight-play, 18-yard drive. I mean, first thing that should scream at you is got either a sack or penalty, right? When you have that many plays in that few yards, like something's happening that's taking you backwards. But still, uh, the nine-play, 67-yard drive ends in a fumble. I believe that was on a, on a uh, Nicosi Perry fumble. It was recovered. Five-yard, 17-play drive. That one started off, off a touchback, so the 25. You have the drive where you miss a field goal. Okay, that's going to happen. Uh, three plays, eight yards, so three and out. Six plays, five yards. And then they get the score. I'm about 65, 70% way of through watching this game. I'm in the third quarter right now. But I don't know, Joe, because a lot of the Nikosi Perry incompletions that you had, and I don't have his box score pulled up in front of me, but they were on. It, it wasn't like you're asking to complete from second and long or third and 14. That first drive, I think there was like three shots that they had. Uh, on third and three, or, or, or to, they needed three yards to pick up uh, first down. Sorry, plenty of medium situation, medium down and distance conversions that were missed. And again, I'm not putting it all on Nikosi because I too am a fan of his game and things very talented. But I, 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 I can't make sense of the fact that you know, as an offense, they're not able to 
down and distance situations that you kind of need to have to win games. They've struggled at this year. So I'm just wondering what you make of that. I mean, it's a valid point. I think when you go back and look at kind of earlier in this season, I was really impressed with Perry's ability to kind of hang in the pocket and continue to be that like the leader of that offense and and deal with pressure the way that he has. And frankly, I think there are better pass rushes um, given, you know, the injuries and the issues that USEP's had this year that they're going to face. So I'm just, I, I personally, I would have kind of put it on him to kind of lead the rest of this game, regardless of, you know, where they were, because clearly I think they reached a point where the rest of what they were doing wasn't really going to push them over the edge. Um, but their defense did, did get it done in certain points. So I don't know. I, I personally would have like, I, I'm always going to default to like, when you're in a close game, you need to be able to rel- uh, rely on your veteran quarterback to be able to put you in a position to win it. Sure. No, listen, I, I, I can't I can't disagree with that assessment. Just kind of, again, I got the entire fourth quarter to watch, so we'll see if something kind of changes my mind. But that's kind of my assessment on things. All in all, I mean, this is another disappointing loss for FAU. Like, it's kind of rinse and repeats. So I won't dive too hard into the assessment. You know, give credit to uh, UTEP. Especially Deion Hankins, 17 carries for a buck 38. Nice to see him have a bounce back game. You know, it's kind of been, you know, alternating who's been the guy between he and Ronald Awat all year. Um, but great performance for them. And now at three and five, Willie Taggart's team needs to win their final four games just to get to seven wins. So, you know, maybe we'll pick up this conversation in a week or two if they get to. Well, you know what? Actually, Joe, I'm sorry. I, I, I hate to do this. I know we're not. The, the guys like to have this conversation, but I think we may have to have it now. <laughs> All right. Um, if, because only because they play UAB next week. Mm-hmm. If FAU has a loss similar to the way Charlotte lost against FIU, are we potentially having the same conversation next week? And I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not asking you if you think they'll do it. I'm asking you kind of what's your, what is your read? As far as if that were the case, would it be justified? For clarification, you're asking if they lose to UAB next week, do they make a coaching change? If they lose to UAB in a similar fashion that Charlotte lost to FI, not if they lose 21-20, if they lose in a similar fashion. If they lose in a similar – like if they just get manhandled the way that Charlotte did against FIU, then I – think that's very possible. That being said, I don't foresee them having that kind of day against this UAB team, especially if for whatever reason Dylan Hopkins ends up being able to not go and they have to, you know, deal with Jacob Zeno, which we'll get to. But I think the the real, you know, coaching change conversations get very real in the couple of weeks after that where they have to go to FIU and then to Middle Tennessee. If they're not able to put forth, you know, performances that the administration deems acceptable in those games, then that's where you need then th- that those are the ones where I think we'll we'll probably have a real chance of having those conversations. But next week, eh, just because UAB is UAB and we'll see. Yeah, and that's fair. And for the record, I don't think that's going to happen either. I mean, I, I you know, I've been a Willie Taggart defender, a Willie Taggart defender and I think they're going to come out and play hard and, and compete for him uh, and, and, you know, for themselves as well. But I just do think things get interesting. And for the record, I believe Willie Taggart's buyout does significantly lessen. Um, I want to say it's the first week of December. I can't remember the exact date. So that could play a factor as well. Well, there you go. I think you just found your answer there. <laughs> Fair.
All right, for this next bit, obviously, the big news that we talked about at the top of the show, Will Healy out as the head coach of the Charlotte 49ers. For more, we're bringing in Hunter Bailey, of course, an occasional and former uh, underdog dynasty contributor on the 49ers. And Curly, you can find his work on his Highway 49 podcast, as well as in the Charlotte Observer. Hunter, always great to talk with you, my friend. For sure, my friend. Good to chop it up with you guys. <laughs> for sure. All right. And uh, I know you and Eric were, were talking a little bit about uh, the you know news that has broken since um, in terms of Charlotte moving on. And I'm curious, Hunter, were you able to go to the press conference on Monday that um, supposedly was going on with uh, Mike Hill and uh, P. Rosamondo in terms of what's going on with uh, the program in the interim here? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, sir. Actually just left that about an hour ago. So today was Mike Hill's press conference and tomorrow is going to be Pete Rosamondo uh, being introduced as an interim head coach and there will be players made available. I'm assuming it's going to be team captains Chris Reynolds and Marquis Watts for that. Um, as far as today with Mike Hill, uh, Mike talked a lot about it being being a sad day for Charlotte. It's tough to see somebody like Will Healy go, uh, especially in, in what he was for the program as, as a marketing perspective. I mean, Will Healy was Charlotte football, and he put in a ton of work on that front. Obviously, it did not translate in the talent development department, and I think that correlated with the, the two, two wins in the last 14 games kind of being the downfall of the Will Healy era at Charlotte. Uh, Mike, like I say, Mike talked a ton about uh, what he would want in candidates. Uh, no, no one is off limits. He's willing to, like some schools you see people, they want to maybe flip to a more experienced P5 drop down. But Mike said, everyone's wide open. He's got about 40 names at this point. Uh, there's, there's a lot of options here. One of the questions I asked was about uh, Healy's salary, making around $800,000 a year uh, moving to the American. Uh, the lowest coach in the American is double that. And I asked about how they would make that jump if it was available to accommodate that number. And obviously, assistant pools, uh, a lot of things like that are going to have to come into play here with the salary aspect. And Mike said, I mean, they're not going to get to that point overnight, but this move to the American, the additional funding, like they're going to make it happen. They're going to be able to put together a sizable offer to get, I mean, obviously a desirable candidate to take this job. That's, that's kind of like a general synopsis. There is, there is a lot to unpack for that, from that for sure. In your opinion, you mentioned school is not wanting to make the same mistake twice. And um, and you wrote a piece about potential candidates to replace Healy, as did our own Kevin Fielder on Underdog. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on what are the most important factors to look for in a head coach, given where Charlotte is as a program right now. Yeah, I think when you look at the program as it sits right now, compared to when Healy took it over in 2018, talent-wise, I would say it's worse. Uh, 
But in terms of like reputation, visibility, I would say it's leaps and bounds further. I mean, obviously you had the winning season, you had the bowl game, you had the power five victory. Now you have the jump to the America. There's not real momentum right now because you just lost by 19 points when you were a 13 point favorite over FIU on your homecoming. The crowd didn't look too great. Like the momentum is tough, one and seven. And at this point, they're just playing for pride. But the, the moving forward aspect of this is, is going to be really interesting to me. And someone asked a question today at the press conference, is this the biggest moment in Charlotte 49ers history? And I think, I think, I really think that it is like you, you have to nail this one. If you want to be UCF type program that Mike Hill has talked about. And I think like having the resources, they will be hiring a search firm. There is no like, specific firm identified yet. Mike Hill is still working out those details. Uh, candidate wise, I would be I would be shocked if Charlotte goes the same way in terms of another FCS good recruiter coach and one of those guys that fits that mold is Mike Mentor, former Panthers safety and current uh, head coach at Campbell. Like I say, I would be shocked if they went in that direction again. Do I think Mentor would be good hire for sure but i just i can't imagine them going like a young and less experienced fcs coach again that does not have a winning record it just seems like you don't make that mis like mistake two times in a row but they're i mean this is going to be developing for quite a while we talked we talked about national or early signing day being december 21st they want to make this hire before that like they're they're getting started right now, and according to Mike, there's a lot of interest nationally in this, and there's going to be going to be a lot of candidates that kind of emerge through this process. So I'll be really interested to see kind of the short list that they kind of narrow it down to. So you'd be more interested to go with uh, someone who's maybe had more experience leading like G5 or at the very least FBS programs before. For sure, I think I think Will Healy helped put the program on the map. I think he was a great face for it. And he's going to be tough to follow in that department. But I really think that you need somebody that excels in that X's and O's department that's done this and that can really fuel this program. Because like I say, I think they're on the cusp of getting to where they want to be. But there's a long way to go. So like I said, the player development, the recruiting. I mean, we're talking about 2020. They had the 71st recruiting class in the country, and that was third in Conference USA. Since then, 108th, 114th, and now this year they're 129th in the nation, and they just had their only quarterback commit in the class. He was a verbal commit. He decommitted. That was Sean Boyle. Like There's, there's a ton of uncertainty right now, and I think, I think kind of what they tried to do with Greg Brown, they wanted a veteran leader on the defense. Like Very obviously, that didn't work out. I just think Personally, I believe they need somebody that's done this and has a proven track record of being able to do this at the G5 or P5 level for sure. And you mentioned that as of now, Monday afternoon, players haven't been made available to the media for comment on the situation yet. But um, has there been any, you know, uh, social media or anything otherwise that the players have put out regarding, you know, either their sentiment towards um, how the last couple of days have went down or what direction they want to see the program go in just yet? Man, these players love Will Healy. Like I've had phone calls with multiple of them just talking. There, there was not a dry eye in the room when he addressed the team yesterday at 1 p.m. And that's, 
that's the deal with Healy. And I, I tried to stress that in the state of the state of the program article that I wrote, like the players play for him. There was no giving up on Will Healy, but it was clear that he wasn't getting it done. And I think like even talking to 12 of them were for sure that he would be back next year. And I, I also said this in the piece that Char- I didn't expect Charlotte to make a knee jerk reaction, but I think the way that things went down on Saturday, it was time. And like I say, the players, there's a lot of emotions in there. And you're like me personally, I'm thinking about these 60 year guys that come back, Chris Reynolds, Vic Tucker, Marquise Watts, Ashton Gist, that have like could have could have hung it up last year, but came back for this last ride. Obviously they're one and seven and I, like I said, just playing for pride. But yeah, it's uh the players have definitely been in support of him and I say it's uh it's a it's a tough scene for Charlotte right now. Yeah, I can imagine. You mentioned those older guys who came back for uh, for a sixth year and really kind of stuck it out because they wanted to leave their mark on this program. And, and Eric, I'll kind of pass it over to you. Uh, we've talked a lot just between you and I about uh, Will Healy's abilities as a culture builder. And hopefully whoever they bring in, um, while it's clear that Healy wasn't getting the wins that he wanted, what the fans wanted, what the program wanted, and I would assume what the players wanted, um, hopefully that culture that he started to build and that uh, you know that, that sense of uh, joy he seemed to bring to the program doesn't leave the program just yet. Yeah, Joe, it, it's interesting. So I'm going to kind of go a bit in the in a different direction or a bit of a different direction than that. Please do. Um, having been uh, on the ground, because obviously Charlotte lost that game to FIU and I was at Jerry Richardson Stadium covering that game about two seats away from Hunter. So but I want to start here and, and I want to uh, forgive me. I'm going to pine a little bit before I ask this question. I want to bring the audience in. Joe, you've heard me, you know, kind of talk about the state of G5 stadiums and the layouts and whatnot. And I feel like, you know, some of those things may have gotten lost in the reason why I mentioned that. Well, here's an exact reason why I do on the podcast. So Jerry Richardson Stadium, uh, it is a it's a stadium entered from the top down. Right. So because of that, um, the the press suite, the press level is it's directly within eyeline eyesight of the lower level stands. Uh, you had, and Hunter can attest to this, multiple fans who, and it's a press box you can see into, uh, Joe, they took the time to look at us and loudly yell it towards the press box, fire Healy. There was a gentleman who was chanting for a better, the better part of like 10 minutes, fire Healy. We had a guy in the first quarter who, after FIU went up 14-0, walked across that suite and, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said in, in full, but it was for about 10 seconds, giving his reason about why they should fire Will. And then he made his way over to the, the Charlotte coach's box and started yelling at the coach's box, telling them to do their job. So all of that is to be said, Hunter. Um, yes, uh, in your state of the state of the, the program piece, and authors did a great job on that. You talked about Charlotte not making a knee-jerk reaction. A, how much of this was a loss to an FIU team that is – very much clearly rebuilding and had some struggles in conference USA. Obviously the, the last conference USA game that they, uh, that they played um, or the last few they played, they've been outscored uh, something like 130 to uh, things, 130 to 10 memory serves me correct. How much of it is a that and B, as I mentioned, you and I were there. We heard how vocal from really the first quarter on the, the fan base and the chance were for will he be fired. Definitely. Um, I'll start with start with the first part. When I when I talked to Mike Hill during Charlotte's bye week following the UTEP loss, that was a game that they trailed 
41 to 21 and they would rally. And obviously Chris Reynolds had the ball a minute and 30 to play. And at that point you're feeling as comfortable as ever uh, for the 49ers. They don't get that done, but you see the fight in that game. And that's one thing that Mike talked about. Then you have the bye week. Then you have UAB and you see Charlotte look like, look like they could beat the Blazers for three quarters of that football game. Obviously they don't lose 34 to 20. And then you come into the FIU game on Saturday. Like I said, 13 and a half point favorites homecoming. Like, you know, you have to win or you are eliminated from bowl contention and you go out there and get absolute boat raced by statistically one of the worst teams in the FBS and lost to Western Kentucky 73 to zero just earlier in the season. And like, the only reason I bring that up is because Charlotte has to play them in two weeks. And you look at that, I just I think it was the way that it happened and the embarrassment that it was for the fans. I mean, you talked about the people around the press box. There were literally people just in the crowd chanting, fire Will Healy, get him out of here. And I and I asked Healy about that in the post game. And he said, you know, yeah, like I'd be lying if I said I didn't hear it. And he apologized to the fans stressed that his goal was to create success for the players. And he was, he was even asked straight up, like, are you still the guy for the job? And of course he said, yeah, of course he said, he feels like he's built for this. And I mean, I think, I think Will Healy will bounce back. I think he'll get a P5 job as an assistant or as a position coach, or maybe another G5 head coaching opportunity. Like that's obviously still to be determined, but I, I do think that how that game happened yesterday or Saturday, how that went down, getting blown out like that at home. Like they haven't won a home game just in the stadium. And I mean, two, two weeks from now will be an entire year. They're 0-4 at home this year. The standard, the standard of Charlotte football is way below what Will and Mike, Mike Hill stressed to us in Healy's introductory press conference back in December of 2018. And I, when you look at things now, there isn't that excitement. There isn't that hope. And just like the way that Saturday went and the environment, I mean, men, like Eric, you, you were there. It was a beautiful day. There was great tailgating going on. Awesome Saturday in the city of Charlotte. And then for them to go out there and play like that. And that, that personally, for me, that was the first time that I thought that they gave up. And I thought that there wasn't the fight and the tenacity that we've seen Will Healy's football teams have through these past four years. And that was the main thing that Mike talked about. He said, if I don't see that fight as an athletic director, if I don't see that resiliency, then I know. I think we saw that. I mean, the first half specifically, but the game, the game in itself, it was, it was a, a tough end to the, you know, downward declining roller coaster ride that was the Will Healy era. So Hunter, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I'm gonna come back to that in a second. You know, Joe, uh just kind of furthering on the point that I talked about the atmosphere with the fans. Uh, I'm sure Hunter can attest this as well. Um it, it, Joe, it was really uncomfortable. I mean almost to be honest with you. I mean, you know, we're behind glass. I didn't think anyone was gonna, you know, break through the glass and get after us, but the first half was kind of uncomfortable with the amount of fans who just were, you know, they they obviously couldn't talk to Will. They couldn't go down to the to the field. So they were taking their uh, their aggression out on and yelling directly at the press box. So that, that got a little bit uncomfortable. But um sure. 
Can I interrupt with a, a, a yeah, quick question? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, Hunter, you have been on the ground covering this program for a number of years. Eric, you were at the game. Um, I guess my thought is, is there something else underlying the tension between Healy and the fans that that I'm just not seeing other than the fact that obviously the wins and losses and the performance on the field just isn't meeting the expectations for the kind of buy-in that this athletic department and this fan base has put in the program the last couple of years? Generally, I, I would tend to believe there is more in the – Obviously, if it's results driven, I think mm-hmm. I think when Healy said that he's more of a CEO and his job on game day is being a cheerleader, I think when people read that, he like lost some credibility in that aspect. And I think people wanted someone that had the X's and O's abilities to like really take over. Because I mean, obviously, when you watch a defense that's given up forty three points and five hundred and twenty seven yards. Mm-hmm. You want a coach to be able to step in and call the plays and make a change. And he doesn't, he doesn't have that in the, in the toolbox. And that's, that's part of like the Will Healy experience. Like he is the master marketer. He is mm-hmm. great with the fans. He's great with the media, but it didn't, it didn't translate to the wins. And that's the biggest thing. Gotcha. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no worries. You're good, Joe. No worries at all. Um, so, Hunter, I, I'm glad you mentioned another point. And Joe obviously wasn't at the game. So, you know, I can't fault him for, you know, kind of what we've – what his assessment there because of what we've seen from Will Healy over the past few years and in our conversations. But, Hunter, I think you hit on a really key point in why I think this move had to be made. They did not have any energy. Uh, Joe talked about, you know, that usually they have a, a, that trademark, that that fight, that they want to go out there and play for him. They did not. It was clear. I just wrote this in a game notebook, Joe, that when FIU left the field for warmups, Tyrese Chambers was back after missing two games with injury. He fielded a punt and then circled the entire FIU half of the field that they could warm up on and ran with the ball over his head and led the entire team into the, into the locker room. When he, uh, Charlotte came out, they had no energy, as, as Hunter mentioned. So I, I think that was a was a, a really noticeable a noticeable aspect in this move. And it's kind of a segue into my next question, Hunter. You talked about the fact that it, they can't seemingly go in that direction again. I saw Mike Minter ma- mentioned, as you talk about with Joe. And yeah, I mean, Mike Minter has done, you know, obviously a Carolina Panther legends, does some things at Campbell, but still very much an FCS team. In in your mind, I know you said that you know if they have to go with a, a power five guy or someone who has experience at the G five level. It, in your mind, is there anyone that really fits that bill that you think would be attractive to Charlotte, or is it going to again have to be maybe not an FCS coach, but a young up and coming uh, assistant, so to speak, from the group of five or or uh, power five? It's funny because I actually wrote this uh, this story for underdog dynasty back in 20, 2018 before Healy was hired and it's Pep Hamilton. Um, that's, he has my vote. Uh, with Charlotte native, her offensive coordinator for the Houston Texans. Spent some time at Michigan. He's been all over, caught a ton of offenses. And I think that that's the guy that you need. He has the Charlotte ties. He has the recruiting ability. He has the name. He has the respect. If you can get this guy to take that job, like name your price type deal. If you if you are serious about making this move to the American and truly becoming a school like UCF, which Mike Hill compared Charlotte to, like I think I think the direction you go in. And the biggest question is, would he take the job? At least in my opinion, because Josh Gaddis was a candidate. 
he is the OC at Miami. He was at the time, he was the wide receivers coach at Alabama. I think he's another name. But Hamilton definitely has my vote at this point. And final one to ask you, Hunter, before we get you out of here is this. Um, just it, overall, you know, when you look at the Charlotte program and kind of where they've gone, obviously Will Healy had success in that first year and, and you know, now ended with his firing. I know you mentioned that there wasn't a dry eye in, in the room and clearly the, the guys did love Will Healy. But in your mind, did you see any, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to use the word cracks, but it, maybe possible mismanagement of the roster it just felt to me as from a pure outsider perspective that, I don't know. It, it just felt, and maybe this goes into what you were saying about him not being the greatest, you know, game day X's and O's coach, but being a master marketer. It, it felt all in all, like, I don't want to say it, but I guess a mismanaged roster. Am I off in that assessment or, or did you see some of that at all? I definitely think there were some, there were some issues there and we saw like some of the best talent from Charlotte transfer this past season. I think, I think they saw the cracks that you're talking about, talking about guys like Tyler Murray, Dimitri Emanuel, Jonathan Cruz, I think they saw this coming. And I, there's been a lot of former transfers, a lot of former players that have been tweeting and then deleting their tweets, just saying, like, how could y'all have not seen this coming? Like, I've gotten calls from player parents. I've gotten calls from former staffers. Like, this is the past two months with this, really since the season started, obviously, the downfall. Like, there's just been a lot of negativity surrounding it. And when you talk about... <laughs> Like roster mismanagement, I think the most glaring one is Calvin Camp, the running back. 5.6 yards per carry last year. He was the last 49er to have a 100-yard rushing game. Led the team last year. He's got played in one game. He had once, once, <laughs> one carry for two yards, and that was against FAU. And I just don't know how you take one of your best running backs on the team when you have little to no running game this year, and you – like he was a healthy scratch on Saturday and he's, I asked he that question after the game and he said they would handle that internally. And I think, I think there are definitely some interesting, interesting situations here. I mean, there's a ton of injuries on the defensive side of the ball, but even before that we saw Trey Kramer, the team's best cornerback of the year, not play at all against FAU, not play at all against William and Mary. And then finally is inserted into the lineup against Maryland in week two. And I mean, obviously huge question mark. Why is your best cover corner not playing in your season opener? He didn't even, he didn't even travel to the game. Like we've, there's just, there's been a lot of like head scratchers like that. And then, I mean, against UAB, Vic Tucker plays 29 snaps, like make that make sense. I mean, so, I mean, I know you love Vic Tucker's game. It's like you watch it, and how can you not? The way that how technical he is, he's been that guy. How is your sixth-year wideout leader and former team captain, how is this guy not in the game? And how is he only playing a third of the snaps? Like, there's there's a lot of stuff like that that you look at, and there's a lot more that I'm probably forgetting right now. But in terms of this management, I think there was a lot of that, and I think – I'll be interested to see how Pete Rossomondo handles it. I know that like his presser tomorrow is going to answer a lot of these questions, but these last four games, like I said, playing for pride, playing for playing for seniors, like this is the last time a lot of these guys are going to be together. And this is the last time that a lot of these guys are even going to have a chance to play football. And I think that 
how they how they handle this and how these final four games end is like I say, I, I hope it goes well for them just knowing these people, but it's definitely gonna be interesting to watch unfold. Absolutely. Hunter Bailey of the Charlotte Observer, formerly of UDD, maybe uh, occasionally as a freelancer of UDD in the future. <laughs> Appreciate you making the time, my man. <laughs> Inside, All right, man. Thanks. Love y'all guys. Yeah, thanks you. I'll uh, I'll sell some blood so we can get a freelance budget to bring you back. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, bud. So with that, then let's jump into some predictions for next week. We're jumping in to CUSA week nine games starting on Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network. FIU hosts Louisiana Tech uh, Bulldogs minus six and a half heading into this game as of Monday evening. Um, You know, this one's going to be. Some, something that I'm going to watch for in this game is FIU going to be able to keep up the same kind of quarterback pressure that they had against Charlotte against Louisiana Tech. If Tech is down to their third string quarterback, then that's something that will play a huge factor in this one. And, you know, honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and pick FIU for the upset. I really like the way that their offense is playing right now. I think their defense has, you know, showed the ability to do, uh, to do some really good things. Um, it's been a weird time for them at the cage, for sure. <laughs> um, the the only win they've they've had at that game or at that stadium rather this year has been against FCS Bryant, and that came down to the last possible second there. But you know, Louisiana Tech obviously they've they've done some good things. Just put up forty points on a, a pretty good Rice defense, so would not surprise me at all. But just for the sake of, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Just because I, I feel saucy today, I guess I'm going to pick FIU for the upset on Friday night. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm having some of that same sauce show. Cause uh, I have not written my game preview yet, but I am also going to pick the Panthers. Here's why Louisiana tech has looked good over the past few weeks. They've looked better. I should say um, than they've started the year. And I think that's indicative of a team that's rebuilding a young team that's growing, but the Panthers also have as well. This game in my mind gives FIU a chance to establish Yes, we beat Charlotte decisively, and that's the key. It wasn't a fluky win. They beat him decisively. However, as we talked about with Hunter Bailey, that's a Charlotte team that's clearly in turmoil and was slash is going through some things. So there's another excuse. It feels to me as if, and this is also another thing that's kind of indicative of a young team, they play better when they're doubted as opposed to maybe coming in and, and it's like all right, riding, high of a, high, riding high off of a win. Uh, with that being said, they also have to get used to winning. This isn't the first time they're returning home after a win this year. You know, they, they, they've gone through that already. So if Grayson James keeps trending in the right direction, which I believe he will, Louisiana Tech's defense, talk about Kazan Israel to stop anybody. Tyrese Chambers is going to be the best player on the field, as he tends to be most times he is on the field. Give me FIU. That's a very real thing, and I think we've seen that with multiple teams, even just in this league this year, especially with younger players. When you just play without the burden of those expectations, that's ultimately when you end up putting up your best numbers sometimes. So we'll see if that ends up being the case for FIU, uh, if they can escape that that pressure of coming off a victory against Charlotte here. Um, and then on Saturday at... 2 p.m. Eastern on ESPN3, we have Rice hosting the Charlotte 49ers. Uh, Rice, of course, four and three, two wins away from uh, getting to bowl eligibility, and they've already matched uh, Mike Bloomgren's best uh, start here and best uh, best start since 2016 as well. Owls minus 16 and a half heading into this one. I see no reason to think Rice doesn't win this game given the turmoil that the Charlotte program is dealing with right now. 
So give me the Owls by uh, by a country mile in this one. Short and sweet with what Charlotte's dealing with right now. I don't think there's any way they're really gonna, they're going to be able to turn their heads around this quickly and try to compete. You know, uh, unless you're one of the older guys on this team, you have not dealt with a coaching change, and none of the players on this team have dealt with an in-season coaching change. That's a lot to handle. Um, first road trip without Will Healy. Uh, in the effort of full disclosure, I will say this. The hotel that I was at when I covered the, the Charlotte game coincidentally ended up being the uh, Charlotte team hotel. So I, I had a chance to kind of see, you know, just the feeling of those guys and, and how much the ones that, you know, truly were brought there by Will Healy, how much they loved him. That's a lot to wrap your head around as a, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old and have to get on a plane and head to Houston, play a Rice team that is training in the right direction. Not going to happen. Give me Rice. Then we have FAU hosting UAB. We talked about this one a little bit already. That is going to be, or I'm sorry, I skipped Western Kentucky, North Texas. And then we have Western Kentucky hosting North Texas at 3.30 Eastern on Stadium Western minus 10 in this game. Um, This one's tough because we've seen what North Texas's pass defense can do. We've seen what Western Kentucky's pass offense can do. Um, So I'm going to be interested to see if Western Kentucky can replicate something close to the rushing performance that they had against UAB next week. And if they do, obviously that's going to be bowl eligibility and – a step towards another appearance in the CUSA championship game for them. But of course, North Texas can never really count them out. We know exactly what that rushing attack can do. I would be very surprised if they didn't try to get back to that and, you know, put up uh, some of those bigger numbers that we've we've seen them put up uh, this year and do that against a, a Western Kentucky rushing defense. That's okay, but not, anything um, particularly special. Um, but if they can establish that, then I think they'll win. But I'm going to go ahead and pick the Hilltoppers because, you know, based on what I saw at the end of that UAB game, they're playing with a lot of confidence right now. And when this Western Kentucky team is feeling themselves, then they're tough to beat, especially at home. This one is huge for North Texas. And I'm going to tell you right now that I am going with the mean green only because I think they have to have it. You know, if in my mind, if they lose this one in North Texas, we talk about with Brett Vito. They had arguably the toughest stretch of, you know, any COSA contender coming down the stretch. I think if they go over two and two games that, you know, theory, that in theory, they had to have things could, I don't want to necessarily say fall apart, but then things start getting dicey as far as their bowl eligibility. So I'm going to take North Texas. I think their rushing attack will rebound. I think that's a group that's a lot of, takes a lot of pride in being able to run the football the way they do. And, you know, defensively, they're going to have, obviously have their hands full to Western Kentucky offense. I, I may regret this pick because, I mean, when you look at it on paper, Western's passing game should be able to, and in the running game as well, should be able to have a lot of success against a defense that's, you know, been up and down over the past few years. But, that defense played really well against UTSA. I think they're going to carry that over. So give me Western. Give me uh, uh, North Texas. Then FAU hosting UAB at 7 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network, UAB minus five. We talked about this one a little bit already, but this is uh, incredibly important for FAU as well as for UAB if they want to stay alive in the CUSA type race. A um, lot of teams kind of in that middle in a cluster there waiting for uh, their opportunity to sneak ahead of somebody else in the standings. But, uh, you know, UAB – as of Monday, we don't know what Dylan Hopkins' status is going to be, so don't want to speculate too much. But I will say, if he goes, then I feel significantly better about their chances just because I, I like what he's able to do in terms of leading the offense and adding that veteran presence to that backfield. Um, but 
UAB either way is still going to have their rushing attack. They're still going to have Dwayne McBride. I think if they are able to get him going early and do what they've done all year in terms of how they win games, which is establish the clock, play really good defense, um, establish control of the clock rather, play really good defense and wait for things to open up downfield and see if Trey Shopshire is, you know, they're running that signature play like 20 being wide open, 25 yards downfield. Then I think they'll, they, they won't have too many issues against this FAU team, but um, on FAU side, they also run the ball particularly well. We've seen that a few times and they play good defense too. So this one's tough. And I'm not surprised that this is a uh, uh, favorite uh, predicted by Vegas to be uh, a one score game. I'm actually pretty confident in UAB and I am taking them for the win, regardless of whether it's Jacob Zeno or Dylan Hopkins. I think Joe, we've talked about this over the years. That's one thing to be a backup quarterback and come into the game, press into, into duty because of injury. It's another thing to have the entire week of game plan as the guy. Jacob Zeno isn't lacking talent. I, I think that's just a game in that, you know, hey, it's the huge spotlight, CBS Sports Network against a really good team. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to come in. I think uh, with a full week of prep, I expect Zeno to come in and play better if he is the starter or if Dylan Hopkins is. Uh, I think especially with Dwayne McBride and the way that UAB can run the football and the struggles that FAU are coming off of last week, give me UAB. Uh, and I, I don't want to say it's going to be a blowout, but I feel very confident that they'll get to win. And then to close out that slate, we've got UTEP hosting Middle Tennessee at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN+. And the Miners are one-and-a-half-point favorites as of Monday evening here. What's interesting about this to me is – UTEP has had such an issue playing consistently this year, as evidenced by that four and four record. But I, I don't think either team is going to come into this game particularly rattled. I mean, we've seen this MTSU team. I don't know, not they're they're not the flashiest team. Obviously, they're three and four, coming off a loss to uh, their rival in Western Kentucky two weeks ago, coming off a bye this week. So they've had plenty of time to prepare for UTEP and. A lot of veterans on that team. I don't think that they're going to be able to come into this game with like any particular like sense of like we th- that it's a must win, given what their expectations are for the team this year and what everybody's expectations are for the team this year. But all that to say, I think UTEP is a more talented team, but they're certainly a more inexperienced team. But if this comes down to it again, like it's hard to find a kicker who's as dependable as someone like Gavin Beckel is. So if this ends up being a close score, like people end up thinking it will be, then obviously UTEP has the tools to get it done. That being said, I just think UTEP has more playmakers on the offensive side of the ball right now, especially with MTSU uh, having Frank Pizant potentially out of this game after he has sustained an injury in that last one. Yeah, I think this is one of the classic Rick Stockstill game where you count them out. And they find a way to go across country and get a win. But with that being said, UTEP has a lot to play for. Not that Middle Tennessee doesn't, but they're looking to build momentum and hopefully, you know, insert themselves, make a late push possibly in the CUSA title race. I mean, that might be a stretch, but, you know, going getting back-to-back wins certainly helps their bowl chances. And I think they have, to be honest, a formula to do so in the rushing game. And MTSU, as you talk about Frank Pizant. We'll see what his status is, but MTSU has yet to show that they can run the ball consistently. They've shown signs of life, which they hadn't shown over the past few years, but consistently hasn't happened yet. So I'll take the minors. What's interesting about UTEP's last month of the season here, uh, hard to believe that they they already only have four games left. Um, but after this one, they go to Rice, and the way that Rice is playing, tough to see if uh, tough to see UTEP getting a win in hostile territory there. But then they host FIU which I think they could get a win. 
but then they end the season with a battle in the Alamo Dome against UTSA. So all that to say, if they really want to get bowl eligibility, I think a win here is is a must uh, is a must for them. And then that leaves them in a position where, you know, if you're going to play somebody to determine your postseason fate, it might as well be FIU and at home. But <laughs> no, no, hang on, hang on. I I paused because I was thinking, and I'm going to close it on this, but okay. I. I understand what you're saying. I agree with it. Um, I'll be honest. I What I do disagree with, I, I agree with the sentiment, but what I do disagree with is I think FI is going to be trending in the right direction. And and, and I don't, I think that's going to be a tougher game than, than maybe, you know, people may think, but that's why I pause. That's all. Sure. We'll see how the next two weeks go. All right. We'll wrap this one up. Thanks again to Hunter Bailey for joining us. Highly recommend you follow him on Twitter for coverage of the Charlotte coaching search, as well as all things, uh, Charlotte football and basketball here. Listen to his Highway 49 podcast if you're not already as well. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And of course, at Underdog Dynasty every day for more G5 football updates. We'll talk to you again very soon. Happy football watching, everybody. Happy football watching, everybody.